You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. It's good to be back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have a a really interesting guest. I just told him that uh, when I first saw his book several years ago, and, and I, his first book, and I just happened to be in the library and the title caught me, something about the Hells Angels. And I thought, well, what's that? And I pulled it out of the shelf and I started reading it and, and I was hooked. And, and I checked that book out and took it home. Jay, sorry, I didn't buy it. <laughs> I got no, it from the you. library. Anyhow, thank folks, this is Jay Dobbins, uh, a former retired ATF agent, worked undercover on the Hells Angels and, and then had some problems with the ATF later on. And so uh, I really uh, uh, am excited to have you here, Jay. Gary, thank you for having me and welcome to your audience. So uh, Jay was uh, was an ATF agent. First of all, he's got, uh, let's see my notes here. He's got two books, Hell's Angels. Uh, Jay, why don't you just tell us the name of your books? Yeah, I, the first book I wrote uh, is titled No Angel, which is a, a kind of a case study of an undercover infiltration of the Hell's Angels um, in Arizona and on the West Coast. And then about... Uh, Seven or eight years later, I wrote a follow-up book called Catching Hell, which is a, a bigger picture uh, memoir type story. So uh, you also now t- today, you're, you're totally out of all that life. Uh, you've got two books out there. You do public speaking. I do a little bit. You know what? I really spend most of my time. I'm a high school football coach. No, and really. so that uh, that eats a lot of my time. <laughs> Well, let's go into your background a little bit. I read up a little bit about you. You played some football, right? I did. That's what actually led to my uh, coaching is, uh, you know, as a, as a kid uh, through college, uh, a very short uh, professional stint, I was a football player. And so uh, I always had a love for that and for the game. And uh, now I'm trying to coach it. Interesting. Well, a guy ought to do what he loves to do and make some money. If you can make some money at it, that's that's the ticket, isn't it? Oh, I'll tell you what. There's uh, zero money to be made being a high school football coach. <laughs> yeah, really. I was going to talk about coaches making money. Now, those college coaches, I saw that deal on the news. You may have seen that recently where uh, was it University of Kentucky? The coach makes more money. $6 million a year. That's more than the budget, the entire budget of the athletic department of that team, uh, St. Peter's or St. Uh, something that almost beat them. So uh, high school coaches are, are woefully underpaid. And some of those college coaches are a bit overpaid, if you ask me. It's a good job if you can get it. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's always the highest paid public employee or state employee in every state is your major college football coach or basketball coach or both. Well, those guys are responsible for generating so much money for yeah. the, for the universities, you know, yeah. uh, when they can build a winning program and teams, win, people come to see them, they buy tickets, they buy all the concessions and, uh, uh, billions and billions of dollars are churned yeah. through, you know, college and professional football. Oh man. I tell you, plus the logo equipment and, uh, uh t-shirts and, and all that. It's just, it's amazing. So you ended up being an ATF agent after your uh, football career, it sounds like, in your, your college. You, you, you did college. And where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Arizona. 
Okay, so uh, you were a Sun Devil, and uh, oh, careful now, we're the Wildcats. <laughs> oh, you're the Wildcats. Oh, yeah, the oh, Sun Devils are that, up the road, and we that, try not to mention their name oh, if at all possible. Oh my God, that's the uh, that's the other one. I apologize, I thought, folks, I started off on the wrong foot with my friend Jay Dobbins. Oh, no, you're you're uh, you're giving props to my rivals, man. Easy now, <laughs> really. Anyhow, uh, uh, moving right along, before he like starts pulling me through this screen and beating the crap out of me. <laughs> so uh, you ended up with the ATF. Now, was that your first uh, law enforcement career? Or some guys go to local PD or state patrol and then go into uh, federal? It was when I uh, entered law enforcement, I had a dream to work undercover. Mm-hmm. And uh, ATF had uh, the premier undercover program in federal law enforcement. So, uh, you know, with a sports analogy, um, it was like, being an undercover at ATF was like playing shortstop for the New York Yankees. Like I wanted to play in the big time and I wanted to play for the best. And so it was a natural fit. Uh, Interesting. Now back then, uh, of course you went to, I think it's Glencoe was your Academy, but, but then did you have more specific training to be undercover? And did you have to go out and be a street agent for a little bit and then go back into the undercover school and undercover jobs? Yeah. At at ATF, all of our undercover operators are street agents first. They're investigators first. It's a technique, uh, uh, a trade craft that's developed. Um, And some of it's developed through uh, training exercises and practical exercises and being mentored um, by experienced operators, but really you, you learn the job trial by fire. Yeah. You get out there and you do it and you make mistakes and you try not to repeat those and you try to repeat your successes. And then, you know, over the course of time, the ones that stick with it, um, refine that trade craft and get good at it. Yeah. yeah. It's a certain skill that, that can be developed, I believe, but I think you also have, have to have a certain innate ability to, to do that. As we discussed before, I never worked under actual undercover, you know, would go into bars and, and sit while a real undercover might be in there doing something and just kind of back up or follow people around and that kind of a thing. And, and well, you know, we talked about before uh, we started recording, um, like I wanted to work undercover. That was, that was my dream. But I was never very good at any of the other elements of the job. I was never a great detective. Um, I was, you know, I I was not necessarily the best guy to put the puzzle pieces together on an investigation. Um, That I I never uh, have claimed to even be the best undercover operator, man. It's just, it's what I loved. And every day when my alarm clock went off, I put my feet on the ground and I came to work and did the very best I could. Sooner Dutton showed up, right? <laughs> That's all we could do at any yes, time. Sir. So uh, this, uh, for, I guess what we ought to talk about, I think which, which drew me was these, some of these stories in uh, your first book. Uh, and it was this Operation Black Biscuit. Is, was that, that wasn't your very first goal, I guess, but, or was it? Oh, no. You know, by the time the, uh, the Hells Angels uh, infiltration started, uh, which was titled Operation Black Biscuit that you referenced. Um, by the time that opportunity arrived, I had 15 years of undercover oh. experience under my belt. Oh, so I forgot, I'd forgotten that. So you did yeah. little jobs in between. Yeah, I had, um, you know, I had bought guns from from pea shooters to rocket launchers, yeah. uh, drugs from, you know, street dope to cartel dope. Uh, 
explosive devices from homemade PVC pipe bombs to servo activated remote controlled C4 devices, um, gang infiltrations, uh, home invasion cases, murder for hires where I played a contract killer. So ultimately when the opportunity came up uh, on the Hells Angels investigation, man, I had, I had quite a bit of experience under my belt to take a shot at it. Yeah, you did. Uh, I tell you what, buying, buying those, uh, that dynamite or C4, those bomb parts and all that, that, that had to be rather ticklish because <laughs> you're, you're dealing with people who don't really know what they're doing. They just got something to sell usually. And, and those things. Boy. Well, you know, over the course of my career, like on the explosive side, a- ATF has the federal firearms and explosives laws and violent crime laws. Um, over the course of my career, like I've, handled uh personally like purchased undercover like over 250 ieds mm-hmm. so it was like you know a real life unprotected hurt locker Not really? Um, really you know i like i wasn't the guy who uh, dismantled them or <laughs> diffused them but like you're meeting some uh some knucklehead out on the street and buying devices that he's made on a workbench in his garage so there's no reliability to him yeah that's for sure. Yeah, that's that would be very, very dangerous, more dangerous than all the rest of it put together, more dangerous than than really being exposed many times as is when my early sergeants told me, he said, you know, if you're you're like working, you're in a bar or something and, and people say, oh, uh, you know, focus on you and, and they think you're like an informant or or some threat. That was our biggest fear. They thought we were an informant. Uh, you know, just get your badge out and say, you know, I'm, you know, hey, I'm the police. And usually that that all ends right there and everybody just backs off. Well, you know, in the explosive game, it gets real when you uh, complete the deal and you go to transfer the devices you purchased and you're in street clothes and you pull them out of the trunk of your car and the bomb tech that's taken them from you is fully <laughs> suited up in a bomb suit and transfers them into a bomb containment device. Man, it gets real. <laughs> really? Yeah, it can get real out real fast out there in, in that world. There's always something that had a guy from Mississippi the other day and, and a guy was showing, he was undercover for the state police down there and a gun, uh, guy was showing him a gun and he wanted to get the serial numbers off of it. So he said, you know, he said, let me borrow this gun for a couple of days. I'll, I need to do something. I'll get it back. I'll pay you for it and, and stuck it in his belt. And, and that guy like cut loose on him. I mean, he went nuts on him. <laughs> he said, I learned that don't just take somebody's gun from them. make sure that they uh, uh, agreed with what you're doing. Yeah. It's a dangerous game for sure. Really? So this, uh, the, the hell's angels now that they're notoriously, you know, uh, uh, clickish, uh, clandestine, uh, uh, no, you know, if you're going to, you don't walk into a Hell's Angels clubhouse and just say, Hey, here I am. I've got a Harley well, guys. Let me buy you a beer. H- how did that work for you? No, there's, you know, there's some that try that approach, but like, these are not guys that uh, you knock on the front door and ask to fill out an application. <laughs> yeah. um, they've grown into an international organized crime syndicate. They're on every continent. Um, they're in nearly every country. And um and, and they're uh, very skeptical. They're uniquely paranoid. Um, and they are because they have to be. That's how they stay out of jail. They don't trust people. They don't welcome people in. They're not quick to embrace outsiders. And so the process of getting close to them and earning trust and gaining loyalty uh, is not an overnight job. It's a long-term operation. 
Really? So now in, in this particular case, did, did you have uh, an informant, a, a cooperating person who then verified you, said, hey, this dude's okay, introduced you in? It would be uh, extremely narcissistic of me to take credit for what we accomplished. It, it, I was part of a task force. Yeah. I was one member of a team that worked on this. And that team involved uh, other undercover agents. It involved uh, informants and, and street sources. Um, and then it involved, you know, case agents and intelligence officers and surveillance officers. And um, it, it was a, it was a sizable task force operation. Like I just had one role within that team, which was to lead the undercover portion of the investigation. So when you, you get in, you have to go into the, uh, they always have a clubhouse, it seems to be like. So so what was that like? Tell, and the, tell, us, the club, tell us guys about what that's like walking in there and, and trying to fit in. Well, you know, you're especially early on in the process, you know, later in the process, I was much more comfortable early in the process. It's a pretty uh, intimidating experience. You know, you walk in, they have entire control. You're outnumbered, you're outgunned. Uh, the first time I walked into Hell's Angels Clubhouse, they dropped a barricade, a barricade across the door. And so there was no easy exit or entrance there. Like we were, you know, we're inside. And then you get inside and it's loaded with members. Like I said, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned, um, all kinds of crazy activities going on. Um, drug use, drinking, partying, girls, Um but the, the Hell's Angels clubhouses that, that, that I was in are like many museums that are tributes to the gang, loaded with uh, plaques and pictures and banners and stories. And um, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a pretty impressive uh, display that they put on that, that honors you know, the, the heroes and the history of the gang. Interesting. So now when you walked in, say that first time, you had to have somebody with you that, that vouched for you, I would assume. Well, you know, that had been uh, prearranged with some street meetings and, and, and associations. Like I said, like I said, you don't just knock on the door and walk right. in and say, hey, guys, I want to take a look around. You're invited there okay. and you're there uh, as a guest. And, um, you know, in the Hells Angels world, that name, that, that insignia, the death head that they display, mm -hmm. that is their, that's their religion. Yeah. Like everything rotates around that. And so you damn sure better be respectful of their religion. And, and especially when you're in their house, because you get sideways with these guys. They're not the kind of people that are going to like tap you on the shoulder and, and, and help you get to the front door and ask you to not come back. They're going to put a baseball bat on your head. Mm -hmm. So now were you wearing some kind of colors? Did you, did you guys, I know somebody out there out West created a whole kind of a fake motorcycle gang and, and, and had colors that was actually based in Mexico. Was that you guys? That was, but the, the, the gang that we had, uh, pre-infiltrated it, it was not a hoax gang oh, okay. we had become uh members of a of a gang known as the solo angels um and we infiltrated that gang not to investigate them but purely just to wear their colors and have credibility cool. in the yeah. biker world 
so that when we were with the Hells Angels, we weren't entirely outsiders. We were uh, integrated into that lifestyle. I get you now. Interesting. That that was that was a long time. So, you know, in order to infiltrate the primary gang, we infiltrated a a, a sub gang to start, you <laughs> wow. know, to to yeah. enhance our credibility. So there was actually two infiltrations within one uh-huh. investigation. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. Now, now, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you even ran across this. Uh, just uh, I, I know we had a Kansas City policeman who was a motor, was a motorcyclist but he's just like a regular policeman. But I found out a little later in my career, he'd actually worked for me when I was back at patrol and I was a sergeant. And I found out a little later that he was actually kind of an associate member of a local Galloping Gooses gang. And he had, you know, I found out he had ridden with them. And, and, and you know, I bet like the Hells Angels, they're, they're so as kind of charismatic, it might be not the right word, but there's a lot of people in all areas of society kind of want to have that some connection to something like that. And so I guess, you know, did they have, I assume they probably had policemen and uh, doctors and lawyers and, and people that kind of were like groupies almost that want to hang around with them or be somehow connected to them, which would then make your job a little harder, especially if they had some cops. Well, that, that the biker lifestyle is is Americana, and it's it's intriguing to a lot of people. It's fascinating to a lot of people, um, and so all, all walks of life are like have shown an interest in that lifestyle. Very few can live it to the to the one percenter level to that outlaw criminal, uh, all in nasty, violent, dangerous lifestyle that it is at the inner circle. But there's a lot of people around the edges that at least pretend to dabble yeah. in that world. And, you know, they're the guys, uh, we call them rubs, uh, rich urban bikers. Uh-huh. Those are the guys that, you know, have the, the 80, 90, $100,000 motorcycles, and they put on a, a bandana on the weekend <laughs> yeah. and some wraparound sunglasses yeah. and then ride around town and and uh, look hard at people at stoplights and yeah. pretend to be something they're not. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I've always wondered about that. I see those guys. I know a couple of them actually. They're, uh, uh, you know, obviously not even connected at all. And, and I'm thinking more of like associate members of the Angels, for example. Like the mob has associates that aren't made guys that that will do stuff for them. And so do the Hells Angels have that? Yeah, sure. There's sub clubs, there's duck clubs that work uh, in association with them, under them. Um, and, and then there's, you know, like like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people out there that just like the lifestyle. They, they, uh, are, they embrace that culture. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to ride your motorcycle around or ride with your friends or, or join a club. Uh, that uh, that enjoys the the, the lifestyle right. that that brings. There's nothing wrong with that, but those people aren't out there uh, murdering and raping and selling drugs and selling guns and doing assaults. Um, they're writing for the love of the experience. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So let's uh, let, let's tell these guys that the one great story, <laughs> the, the murder of the Mongol 
<laughs> that, that, that was that's like one of the, the, the uh, ultimate great stories of working undercover and and doing a job. Well, the uh, the Hell's Angels big rival uh, in the West, at least, is the Mongols motorcycle gang. And they've had, you know, a 30, 40 year bloodbath rivalry. And so towards the end of our case, in order to push ourselves over the top and uh, convince the Hells Angels that we were worthy of their membership, um, I offered to kill a Mongol. Um, and that was very quickly embraced. It was, uh, they, they were excited that, that I was willing to do that to the point where they gave me the gun to do the murder with and uh, explained, you know, to me how they felt I should do it. So um, we got a Mongol and we went out in the desert and uh, dug a shallow grave and duct taped this guy's hands and his feet behind his back. And um, he was shot in the head and took pictures of the crime scene and cut the, the bloody Mongol vest off his back and took it back to the Hells Angels and explained to them that we had just taken care of business and we had committed a murder on behalf of the Hells Angels against their primary rival. The Hells Angels, you know, embrace that. When you go to any of us, any normal person, any civilian or citizen, um, and, and tell them that you just committed a murder and then show them evidence of that murder, they're running the other direction while they're dialing 911. The Hells Angels were the exact opposite. They embraced it. They put Hells Angels patches on our backs as a reward for what we had done. Wow. What they didn't know is that it was an entire fabrication. Yeah. The murder was a hoax. We, we fake murdered a member of our task force. And we used cow blood and cow guts to dress up the murder scene and then took pictures of it. So this fabricated murder um, was all self-invented. So when we were delivering evidence of a homicide to him, it was self-created. It was all a, a part of the Street Theater Act that we were using to, you know, push their trust and loyalty and love over the top. Cool. Now, were you able to snag some of those pictures uh, when you left and, and be able to put them in your book? Some oh, yeah. People buy that book, be able to see those pictures. Well, and I'll tell you what, uh, even experienced homicide investigators that were looking at the crime scene that we had created believed it to be true because we couldn't afford a mistake. We couldn't we, we, we couldn't take these uh, we couldn't take the evidence of this homicide to the Hells Angels without 100% certainty that it was believable. Um, and so we had back-checked that and, and vetted, you know, our story and the pictures and the evidence with homicide detectors before we ever delivered it to our suspects, just to make sure that it was believable. <laughs> wow. That's quite a story. So now what, what was like, so now you're in, they've given you patch, your patch wearing. this is like unheard of, never happened before or since you become a patch wearer, wearing Hell's Angels. And so then are you, you're trying to build like a RICO case, like an organizational case for uh, the different crimes that they're involved in and be able to show the hierarchy. Was that your, your uh, focus, your investigation? Well, in all fairness and for accuracy and, and authenticity, uh, there's a dispute, um, and it's a valid dispute on both sides 
as to what the status of our membership was. Um, we faked the murder. Um, the Hells Angels I was dealing with, the, they they put patches on our back and they said, hey, welcome to the gang. You're Hells Angels now. You took care of business. But they said, they also said, like, we don't have the full authority to do this on our own. We have to take a vote. So within our charter, we were considered Hells Angels and we were given Hells Angels cuts. Um, the vote, the, the national vote for our membership never took place. Um, and so that's their dispute. That's the Hells Angels argument. They're saying, hey, this was never fully sanctioned. Yeah, This was never fully approved. That, that that's not an inaccurate statement. They never, they never took a national vote, but also an accurate statement. What's also accurate is that at that time in that place, those hell's angels said you're hell's angels now. And this is, this isn't just some poo butts down on the bottom of the ladder. This was uh, officers and executives and leadership of the charter I was in. So, um, but the, the, the glitch was, yes, we were building a conspiracy case. We were building a, a, a large-scale RICO case. Uh, we indicted uh, 55 members and associates. 16 of them were indicted on RICO charges. But um, the, 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 the case itself... Uh, was it, it was just, you know, it was it was one part of a big picture. There there was stuff going on with these guys all over the country. And there was people working them all over the country, all over the globe for that matter. Yeah. So uh, now folks, uh, just to kind of go back over, I know I've said this before, like a Rico case, uh, see, he find they find where they members, lower level members will do some kind of a crime. They sell drugs. They, they make a case on, buy some drugs from them. Maybe they buy some guns from them. They, they make some little cases. And then people like Jay and, and uh, any, maybe any storytellers that they can turn can then explain this happens only in within the organization. And this guy is, you know, like the underboss and this is the boss and this is a capo if it was mafia. I don't know what they call it in the Hells Angels, but that that's what, uh, and you would have been a storyteller as well as maybe a guy that helped make some of those predicate cases, made some hand-to-hand drug buys and things like that. Is that sure? Uh, you know, uh, uh, the RICO statute, the, the racketeering and corrupt organization statute, is designed. It was initially designed and, and put in place to use against uh, traditional organized crime right. mafias, um, but it applies beyond that. And what it does is it holds um, a group of people responsible for the acts of one or, 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 or multiple people. Um, it's, it's just a very complex conspiracy case that has multiple elements, multiple moving parts, multiple predicate acts. Um, you have to show a pattern and practice and a history of crimes amongst these people and then tie them together and show their involvement. So it's, it's a very complex case to make. Um, really experienced case agents and prosecutors work work very hard to uh, to get those indictments and prove those cases and prosecute those cases. They're they're very difficult to make. Very difficult to make. Yeah, they are. There's so many moving parts to them. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and so, and, and it's really hard to turn the Hell's Angels, a, a good higher echelon storyteller. Were you able to turn anybody a, a real patch wearing Hell's Angels out of that? 
Yeah, there's, you know, we developed informants and sources from, from what we did and what we accomplished. Um, you know, that there's a very strong brotherhood within yeah. the Hells Angels, and there's a very strong loyalty. Um, but those things um, and, and, and those mantras are oftentimes easier to say than they are to live up to. When, when you're, when someone is confronted, not just a hell's angel, anybody <laughs> is confronted with extended prison time right. um, and separation from their families and separation from the people they love. It's, it's not uh, entirely unusual that those people break from the brotherhood and break from the loyalty um, in, in any in any level of crime or organized crime and end up turning on their brothers. And yeah. so this case was no different. Yeah. As I used to say, you, you have a guy to those uh, sentencing guidelines. You have a guy that's looking at 50 years in penitentiary and he's got to do about 45 of them. And he's 30, 35, 40 years old. He'll he'll take he'll ride on his mother. <laughs> I mean, he's you know, life. there's some that are true believers and they are committed and they are going to take their lick for like whatever length of time it is. Um, but there's others who. Uh, make decisions based on self-preservation. Yeah, really. So you wind the, you get done with this case and eventually you're going to pull you out of it. So that's, how did that work then? Did you just, you just transfer offices and, and do that? And it seemed like you had some problems with ATF in the end and your second book goes into a lot of that. So you want to talk about that a little bit? I did, you know, uh, when the case ended, um, and my true identity was exposed and, and actually unmasked by ATF, um, the death and the violence threats started coming on me, on my family, on my wife, on my kids. Uh, contracts, murder contracts were issued. Uh, the Hells Angels were holding contracts. They farmed contracts to the Aryan Brotherhood and to the MS-13, to some street gangs in Los Angeles. Um, there was threats to uh, uh, poison me with the AIDS virus. Uh, there was threats to uh, kidnap and videotape the gang rape of my wife. There was threats to kidnap my kids, um, which which is all, you know, to be quite honest, it's the cost of doing business. Yeah. If you're going to deal with violent people, they're not going to stop being violent. The tiger is not going to change his stripes. Um, but my issue was that when those threats came, uh, ATF underreacted to them. ATF didn't really want to deal with the aftermath um, and ignored them and downplayed them and um, just, just did not uh, offer any uh, legitimate protection to me and my family. Uh, in the summer of 2008, uh, my house was attacked by arsonists um, after amidst all these threats and burned to the ground. Um, and uh, ATF got caught behind the power curve and they didn't react. They didn't respond. They knew that they had this series of death and violence threats that were unaddressed. They had liability in the situation and uh, very, and I don't even know what words to use, uh, there were some executives within ATF who were um, not only incompetent, but they were corrupt. And um, 
they built a task force and assigned agents with the plan to try to frame me as the arsonist of my own house. Um, And they did it in order to cover their own tracks for their own incompetence and their own failure to react. Um, I didn't burn my house down. I didn't try to murder my family. There was no way they were ever going to be able to like invent anything that was going to make that fly, but they tried. And so, you know, my exit from the agency, I mean, I love ATF and I love the agents with the boots on the ground who are out there doing the job, but there was a handful of people with, within my agency that were just flat dirty. And uh, man, I hit a perfect storm of, of incompetence and arrogance and corruption. And it all came down on me at the same time. Mm. Wow. So um, I guess you just went ahead and took your retirement. Were you able to, to pull out with your full retirement then? I did. I retired, but I retired on my terms. I retired, you know, um, when I wanted to, how I wanted to. I wasn't forced off the job. I wasn't leveraged off the job. Um, I, I, I left calling my own shot. So I would imagine that you, uh, uh, did you just kind of like fade into the woodwork for a while, move someplace else? Or I, I, I mean, you would well, have, Hell's Angels is everywhere. And, and sometimes you'll have, maybe they forgot about you, but they'll have some kid that wants to make a name for themselves and knows a little bit about that story and, and stuff like that. There's, there's no uh, running or hiding from them. They're too massive. They've, their intelligence network is too big. Um, and so um, I don't know what, what term to use. Like I, I'm not hiding, but like I'm in plain sight. Um, I'm doing a podcast with you. I've written yeah, a book about the story. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I was not going to be one of these guys who uh, walks around with a with a plastic nose and a toupee on mm-hmm. trying to disguise myself. Um uh, I live with concern. I know that there's that there's hatred out there for me. I know that there's people that uh, will never forgive or never forget. Um, again, that's the cost of doing business. But I'll tell you this: I never set out to ruin anybody's life. I never set out to uh, uh, to hurt anybody. I was an investigator, and I, and I got in and next to crime and and serious, violent, wicked crime. At times, um, I, I never uh, made anybody murder anybody, or sell drugs, or sell guns, um, or do extortions, or do assaults. I was a witness to those things. I did my job. I reported what I saw and heard and experienced out to case agents and prosecutors. And then ultimately, it's their job to deliver whatever evidence that I can help acquire to juries and to judges and and someone else decides uh, people's guilt or innocence. I just do my best to accurately provide intelligence and evidence and information. And, and, and those people then use that to decide someone's uh, guilt or innocence. Yeah. Right. So it, it's not personal. It's just business. As the mob guys like to say, that's a good thing about working the mafia is they got rules. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I said. Like it, my my objective was never to crash anybody. Yeah. My objective was never to to go out and damage anybody. But my job was to get next to the people who were breaking the law, and then report out what my experiences were. That's what I did. 
All right, Jay, this has been great, man. This is this has been a great interview, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. And and my listeners, my guys out there will 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 just eat this one up. They like hearing from the inside like that, whether it be a reformed mobster or reformed criminal of some kind. They even had a uh, I don't know if he was reformed or not, a skyjacker that spent 40 years in the penitentiary and came out and and uh, he told us his life story and how he did this skyjacking. So uh so really that's what we like to say here from the mouths of the men that did it. And you're are one of the men that did it. And especially with the Hells Angels, this is a real rare guys, you know, if you looked at organized crime and in, in the motorcycle gang world to get this close to Hells Angels uh, is just, uh, I think this is one of a kind really, as, as far as I know, there may be others, but, uh, but there's no other penetration that I know of. I, I don't think than, than what Jay Dobbins Dobbins did here and his task force that he worked with. So my hat's off to you guys. Uh, Jay, tell everybody the names of your books again, and folks, I will, uh, I will put those as links on the show notes. And so I would highly recommend, I know the first one was good. I haven't looked at the second one. I know the first one's good. So tell us the name of those books again. You can get them on Amazon, I assume. And, and maybe, do you have a website too? I do. I have a website. It's just jdobbins.com, J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S.com. There's links to the, my books there. The first book is No Angel. The second book is Catching Hell. And... um yeah. So like they're easy to find, they're easy yeah. to get. Yeah. And, uh, and Gary, thank you for having me and, and thank you to your audience for listening to our discussion and, and God bless everybody out there. Be okay. safe. All right, Jay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Gangland Wire. Now don't forget to like and subscribe down below if you're on YouTube. Uh, and remember, if you are a friend or suffering from PTSD, check out the Veterans Administration resources. Uh, just go to Google and Google PTSD and Veterans Administration or VA, and you'll find that website and you'll find there's a hotline and, and there's links there to, to help you find uh, uh, resources to uh, deal with that problem. And remember, look out for motorcycles on the road and stay safe. Bye, folks. Mm -hmm.